0: So here we are on January eighth. Who still has their Christmas lights up? These are my people. These are my people. The ones that still have their Christmas lights up. (laughs) Christmas tree up. All right, still counts. See, if you have a fake tree, you can just leave it up as long as you want, as long as it's done by by Valentine's Day, right? As long as okay. Well, a few weeks ago we celebrated the birth. Of Jesus, and I titled that message, "What Child Is This?" Right, that little baby, that people take out of the attic, right, every year, and set him up on display before they put him back in there again. Nobody really has a problem with baby Jesus, right? He's not threatening, um, he's not convicting, not to the world, and the world is fine. We walk around in department stores; they're completely fine singing songs like "Joy to the World," right, and "O oh, Little Town of Bethlehem" and "Silent Night." But there's a part of the Christmas story that doesn't ever get talked about. Um, it doesn't get talked about because it doesn't fit on a Christmas card, okay? It doesn't set up well in a department store window. It doesn't really seem to fit the holiday message, or does it? You know, I've always enjoyed the account of the wise men, and I think it's because that's the part that I got in the school play when I was little. I was one of the wise men, you know, walk down the aisle and we're singing the song, Right? We three kings of Orientar, did anybody else think that these kings came from a place called Orientar? I thought they came from Orientar. No, we three kings from Orient are bearing gifts we traveled so far. These powerful men, they actually weren't kings, okay? Um, they, called, they were called Magi, the Magi. They were actually king makers. These guys were the wisest, most respected people in the kingdom, and they actually helped usher in new royalty. That's why it was so significant that they went looking for Jesus, this newly born king of the Jews. Daniel would have been one of these magi. He was actually in charge of the magi. That's how much he was respected. That's where God placed him when he was in Babylon. And that we're told that in their search for Jesus, that they came to King Herod, right? And they asked King Herod, where is the one, where's the baby that's been born king of the Jews? Now, this was a big problem for an aging Herod, okay, who was an extremely volatile man. See, Herod wasn't a real Jew, okay, he was an Idumean, is what the Bible tells us. Now, an Idumean is a descendant of Esau. So, you remember Jacob and Esau? Jacob, the Jewish people are descendants of Jacob, and the Idumeans were descendants of Esau. They did not get along, if you remember that. And so, he had been appointed to that position as king by Rome. And the Jewish people hated him. They didn't like him because he wasn't Jewish. He shouldn't have been sitting on the throne. And Rome appointed him there. And so over time, he had become a really paranoid madman with an inferiority complex. That's a really bad combination. Paranoid, madman, inferiority complex. Um, He had several of his ten wives killed several of his sons put to death because he was afraid that they were plotting against him to kill him or to overthrow him and so when this question came from the magi this triggered a terrible response but first he tried to be cunning first he tried this he said listen when you guys find him why don't you come back and tell me so i can go worship him too But God warned the wise men in a dream not to go back to Herod, and so when he figured out that they weren't coming back, he ordered his soldiers to go into Bethlehem and the surrounding areas and kill all of the the male children two years and younger. It was the furthest thing from a silent night. And this event actually was prophesied by Jeremiah, and Matthew actually uses it in his gospel. Jeremiah 31:15 says thus saith the Lord a voice is heard in Ramah lamentation and bitter weeping Rachel is weeping for her children she refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more and Rachel of course was the wife of Jacob who fathered the 12 tribes of Israel Rachel is sometimes called the mother of Israel but Matthew makes sure to point out That while the angels were singing joy to the world and peace on earth, that not too long after that, there would be weeping and there would be suffering because of this child. And so when we ask the question, what child is this? We have to embrace both sides of that truth that yes, he came as our savior and he came to forgive sins. But wherever this child went, there was suffering and there was sacrifice. There's going to be persecution. The arrival of the Messiah brought persecution to the children and the families of Bethlehem. And that's the reality that Jesus is trying to prepare his followers for. Last week, he was encouraging them. He's sending them out. And he's encouraging them on what to say, right? Where to go and who to stay with. And this week, he's telling them um, that they're going to have obstacles. They're going to have some oppression along the way. So today, we're going to read Matthew 10. And I, I had the best of intentions, guys. I did. This is going to be a two-parter. I know, it's surprising. But we're not going to get through the whole thing today. Matthew ten sixteen. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious. How are you to speak and what you're to say? For what you're to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child. And children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So to understand this passage correctly, we need to know that Jesus is speaking prophetically. Uh, what some biblical scholars might tell, well, might call a telescopic prophecy. And they say this because he is addressing things that are happening currently for their mission that they're about to go on, and then things that they're going to face later on after Jesus has gone, and then all the way down through church history, going through the tribulation. And we see these types of prophecies throughout the Old Testament. The one that I just mentioned from Jeremiah, where he's talking about uh, mothers weeping for their children as their baby boys, as their young men, were being carried off to Babylon. Babylon. And the mothers are weeping because their sons are gone. And then the weeping that took place in Bethlehem after Jesus had left. And the prophet Micah, the prophet Micah told us where he was going to be born. But then a little while later, he tells us about his return. So these are like telescoping prophecies. That's what Jesus is doing here. We know that he's speaking prophetically because some of the things that he's talking about didn't even come to pass until after Pentecost. So Jesus says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Well, last week we talked about evangelism and we talked about discipleship. And now this week Jesus is talking about the cost of that discipleship. When our small group went through the 23rd Psalm, uh, we learned just about everything we wanted to know about sheep, right? And Jesus refers to us as sheep over and over again. He refers to himself as the good shepherd. And so if he's gonna call us sheep and he's gonna call himself the good shepherd, it's good to know something about them, right? Sheep are not bright animals, okay? They are some of the dumbest, most vulnerable domestic animals that there are. They're very easily panicked, and so they tend to stampede, harming others in the process. Uh, pregnant ewes will actually drop their, their young, their unborn young, because they are so panicked, they're so fearful of things that happen. They get into poisonous weeds, they start eating all kinds of junk, all kinds of things that are bad for them. Uh, The shepherd is constantly having to check them for parasites because flies were drawn to them. Um, They had to check them for cuts and abrasions because they would fall over. Uh, Sheep actually fall over on their back and they can't get up again. You want some entertainment, look up sheep and stupid things that sheep do. Uh, They fall over, they have to be righted. You know what they call a sheep that's been turned over on its back? They call it a cast sheep. The sheep is cast down. David writes, why so downcast, my soul? Why are you wallowing on the ground? Get up and praise the Lord. But they fight against each other. They have no natural defenses. The only thing that they can do is run away from danger. And they don't even do that very well. They're very vulnerable animals. Vulnerable to predators. And the most vulnerable or the most dangerous predators in that area and most parts of the world are Wolves. The shepherd had a huge task just keeping his sheep alive, much less healthy and content. And that's why it's so beautiful when David, King David writes the 23rd Psalm and he sits there writing about the shepherd from, he had been a shepherd, but he writes from the perspective of a sheep saying, I can be perfectly content. I can be perfectly at peace because of who my shepherd is. He can handle anything. And the disciples knew about the nature of sheep, and they knew about the nature of wolves. And Jesus is telling them, I'm going to empower you to teach and to serve and to heal. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be unharmed by the wolves or that you're not going to suffer at the hands of men. You might have heard somebody say before, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. That's not true. It's just not true. The best place to be is in the center of God's will, but that doesn't mean that it's not going to be dangerous. We can be at perfect peace in the midst of danger, in the midst of trials and suffering because of who our shepherd is. And our shepherd has a mission for you and for me. He has a mission for us and we're going to be here until we accomplish it. We just hope that it's for his purposes for good, right? We want to serve like a Peter. We don't want to serve like a Judas, right? He has a purpose for us here. And while we're extremely vulnerable, we're invincible until we've accomplished the purpose that he has for us. And there is a tension that we live in between our weakness and his strength, right? Between hateful persecution and joyful submission, the power of the flesh versus the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And the cost of discipleship is to put our complete faith, our complete trust in the good shepherd, leaving all of our will behind. You know, God taught, Jesus taught us to pray, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done. But too often we make prayers to the Lord, praying for our will to be done. Lord, my will be done, my kingdom come. That's not the way that we are to pray. But a cost of discipleship is trusting him completely and knowing that while we're vulnerable and while we're going to face rejection in this world, For us, this is as bad as it gets. For the believer, this life is as bad as it gets. For the world, this is as good as it gets. Okay, so they say, live your best life, get as much as you can now because you only go around once. But for the believer, this is as bad as it gets. Because the reward for discipleship is spending eternity with God. The cost of discipleship is high, but the reward for discipleship is spending eternity with our Father. Now, if I were in this circle of men when Jesus said these things about sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, I would have been a little concerned when I heard this. Okay? See, normally the danger is that wolves make their way in into the sheep. But Jesus has said, I'm sending you out into wolf territory. You're going to be walking in enemy lands. Now, it's the nature of wolves to go into the sheep herd. It is not in the nature of sheep to go wandering into the wolves. It's also not in the nature of a shepherd to send his sheep into dangerous areas. So why would the good shepherd send his people into places where they might suffer? If he sends us there... That's because where we can serve him best is in that situation, in that place, because that's where the sick are spiritually. That's where the lost souls are. That's where Jesus went. That's where the shepherd went. And if the shepherd went into places where the sick were, where those who needed healing, then we follow the good shepherd into those places as well. We don't hear much preaching today about uh, repenting from sin or confessing the Lord the lordship of Christ over our lives and needing to count the cost of salvation or of coming to him humbly, devoid of our own will, of our pride, of our self-trust. We need to be hungering and thirsting for righteousness, entering the narrow gate, walking the narrow road, not walking down the wide road of personal satisfaction, personal fulfillment. Rarely are Christians asked to pick up their cross and follow the good shepherd into the world filled with wolves. The popular appeal, right, is for ease and for comfort and the pursuit of riches, ambition. And unfortunately, the church uses this type of enticement to try to motivate unbelievers to come to the Lord or to motivate those that are already in the church to serve in some capacity, to keep moving but Jesus makes no such promises. The church has said if you add Jesus to your life, it'll make your life easier. Does anybody feel like your life has been made easier because you follow Jesus? We could all be sleeping in right now if we weren't following Jesus. Your life is not easier. It's better, but it's not easier. And when the church tries to say things like this, it's giving false promises to the world, saying "You, if you serve the Lord in this capacity, you will be blessed materially. Jesus makes no such offer. To disciples, he promises suffering and hardship and even possible death. Now, very few of us, it's true, are called to be full-time apostles or full-time missionaries. Very few of us are called to do that, to be sent out across the globe in the midst of wolves. But all of us as sheep are called to be witnesses in a world full of wolves. And if you follow the shepherd, the world's going to oppose you that is the truth. If you follow the shepherd, they will oppose you. Whether we're sent out into the midst of, midst of them or whether you just live in the middle of a bunch of wolves, we're called to follow him wherever he goes, wherever he leads us. And as I, as I ended with last week, said the only thing that's going to sustain you in this world through trials, through the difficulties, is love of Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Because if you don't love Jesus, you will turn back when times get tough, when there is challenges, when there's opposition, when there's persecution. If you don't love the Lord, you're going to falter. But if you love the Savior, you can go anywhere, you can endure anything, because it's all for his glory and our good. And he's not calling you to something that he hasn't done himself, right? Kind of hard to follow somebody when they ask you to do something that they themselves have never done. Jesus would not ask you to do that. He's already been through it. And the truth, the the church has to present the truth of the gospel honestly or we're not being faithful to the Lord. It's made the error of trying to convince people that if you just add Jesus to your life, that it's going to make everything easier. And because of these types of false promises, there have been thousands upon thousands, maybe even millions that thought they were walking down the narrow road to life, but in reality, we're still walking down the broad road to destruction because of a heretic gospel. Jesus is clear. You are sheep among wolves. The world's going to hate you for my sake. And if you follow me, if you have to pick up your cross, deny yourself, live a godly life, live by the Spirit inside of you, the world's going to hate you. We can't sit in spiritual mediocrity Okay, we can't do that, being unfruitful. Jesus said that every branch that doesn't bear fruit, he prunes away. We don't want to be unfruitful vines. Some Christians become spiritual mediocre because they misinterpret God's favor on their life as his approval, right? If we are blessed materially, a lot of people take that as his approval of my life. Um, that's what the world preaches. That's what the Jewish people thought. They thought, well, I am successful. I am wealthy. God must be approving of my life. If you remember Job, as he is suffering and his friends show up and they're like, listen, Job, you must have some kind of sin in your life. God must be punishing you for something because he doesn't punish people who don't have sin in their life. Righteous people don't get punished. They don't suffer. We know that's not the case. Other people are spiritually unfruitful because they're bitter. And they've become bitter because they said, look, I've done it. I have sacrificed. I have lived for the Lord and it hasn't paid off materially. What do you mean it hasn't paid off? We're not living for this life, right? That's not the payoff. Jesus is the payoff. Eternal life with him is the payoff. That is our aim, not this world. This is not our home. God promises forgiveness of our sins. A new life now, an eternity with Him where everything will be made right. No more suffering, no more pain. But, Good morning. This is just to let you all know, a reminder of Mass will be at 11 o'clock in the chapel. Mass today is in the chapel. You're not going to make it. <laughs> <laughs> they haven't done that in a while. That's okay. Right now, We live in a broken world. We live in a broken world. And as long as that's the case, we're going to have trouble, especially when we don't blend in. Sheep don't blend in with wolves very well. If you don't blend in, you're going to be targeted. There was a siege on Rome in 1849, and it wasn't going very well. And one of the generals said to his men, he said, men, all of our efforts against superior forces have been unavailing. I have nothing to offer you but hunger and thirst and hardship and death. But I call on all who love their country to follow me. That was his appeal. And after the Allied forces were forced to evacuate Dunkirk during World War II, Churchill said to his fellow Englishmen, he said, All I can offer you is blood and sweat and tears. And if those human leaders would not send their people into battle under false pretenses, how much less our Lord and Savior. He's not going to deceive us. He's being brutally honest with the disciples saying, I am sending you out. It's going to be dangerous. You're going to face opposition and persecution. Okay, let's finish the first sentence. (laughs) You know what? There were these two women and they were talking about their pastors. And one of them said, our pastor can talk for an hour on any subject. And the other letter said, that's nothing. Our pastor can talk for two hours on no subject at all. (laughs) I'm not going to talk for two hours. Okay, we're sheep among wolves, but we're also to be as shrewd as serpents, but innocent as doves. Now, I never really understood this statement. Why would he say be shrewd as serpents, right? Because we always associate serpents with evil, with deceitfulness. Well, in the ancient world, especially we see this in like uh, things like Egyptian hieroglyphics, that serpents back in that day were symbols of wisdom. They were symbols of being cunning or cautious. And that's the type of characteristic that Christians are supposed to emulate when it comes to spreading the gospel message. We're not to be deceitful, but we should find ways, creative ways, to be able to share the gospel with people. Be cunning when it comes to dealing with the world. Now, sometimes these verses are taken, out of, are taken out of context, okay? So Jesus is talking about evangelism here. How do we use wisdom with the world when it comes to talking about the kingdom? Well, the world might say something like this. Try to discover the best means for accomplishing the highest goal. Discover the best means to accomplish the highest goal. Now, for those of you who have studied philosophy, I'm not talking about utilitarianism, right? Okay, that utilitarianism has to do with finding the most pleasure and decreasing the amount of pain that we experience, okay? That is not what we're talking about. But we're talking about spreading the gospel. From the Christian point of view, what is the highest goal? The highest goal is for somebody to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. So what is the best means to do that? It depends. It depends. Right? Paul writes this. I love it. He writes this in 1 Corinthians 9. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like the Jews, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all possible means I might save some. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. He it says, I've become all things to all men. So people like, isn't that being fake? Is he being fake by becoming all things to all men? No, he's just using the best means to reach the highest goal of winning souls to the Lord. Have you ever seen somebody try to argue a non-believer into being a Christian? You might have seen this on Facebook a time or two, right? People rant and rave in the comments section trying to argue with people about becoming a Christian. Doesn't really work very well. Because they might say something like this, Well, listen, I'm just being authentic. I'm just delivering the truth. All right? But it just comes out as rude. <laughs> just comes across as abrasive. Jesus says, don't waste your time talking to people who do not want to hear the message of the gospel. Don't waste your time talking to those people. You're just casting your pearls before swine. Give the message to people that want to hear it. Okay, but Paul wrote this in Colossians 4:6: Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer every person. Okay, we deliver truth, but we do it graciously, we do it in love. We need to use wisdom and we need to be shrewd when it comes to sharing the, mo- the message of the gospel. Here's one of the best uh, examples that I could find of being shrewd as it pertains to pointing people to, Jesus, to, to the Lord. Uh, if you remember, the Pharisees came to Jesus once and they were gonna try to trap him in his words. And so they came to Jesus, they said, hey Jesus, should we pay taxes to the Romans or not? They were going to try to trap him in that. Because if he said, no, we shouldn't pay taxes, then they would have turned him over to the Roman authorities and said, this guy's causing insurrection. He said, we shouldn't pay taxes to you. But if he said, yes, we should, he would have lost his followers because they hated the occupation of Rome. And so either way, they felt like they were going to trap him. But Jesus doesn't even answer the question, which I love. He says, give me a Roman coin, because that's what they were all using. And they handed him a coin. And he says, whose face is on this coin? And they said, well, Caesar's face is on it. And so he very wisely says, well, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. He used wisdom and he was very shrewd and cunning with his answer in pointing people to God. He didn't use it as an opportunity to rail on Rome. He didn't use it as an opportunity to condone the wickedness. He directed people to the Lord. We need to be wise in directing people to the Lord because what we see a lot online today is people spouting off doctrine without discernment. Okay, You're not going to win anyone over to the Lord by smacking them over the head with the Bible. It's not brave. It's not wise. It's not loving to stir up trouble or to court you know, trouble. That's not wisdom. It's not bravery. That's why Jesus follows this up by saying, be innocent as doves. Be shrewd as serpents but be innocent as doves. Doves, of course, represent purity. Uh, They represent innocence, which is a character quality that every disciple of Jesus should share. We should be innocent. Um, We can still be true to God's word and be uncompromising in proclaiming the gospel. Um, We can be true to God's word and uncompromising in a way that doesn't require us to be abrasive or inflammatory. Okay. Uh, No disciple was more uncompromising than Paul. He became all things to all men that he might win some. Now, he wasn't being deceptive. He was merely adapting to the situation so that he could make his witness more effective. uh, To kind of put this in realistic terms, Um, I grew up in the Northland, right? I went to private school. I was homeschooled. I went to public school. I'm in the business world, I ride a motorcycle, I hunt, I do all of these things. If I can find common ground with somebody on any of these issues, I'm going to take it so that I can make a connection with them and have a conversation with them. Does that make sense? That's exactly what Paul was doing here. He was using all of his experience, all of the things that were true, to make a connection with somebody so that he could have a conversation about Jesus. But nothing deceptive can enhance the gospel. We need to be innocent as doves. Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians 2. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never come with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Then later on, he goes on to talk about how we spoke these things to you in love. We need to find ways to share the gospel, but we do it innocently and we do it in love. Okay, here comes the persecution. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So he says, Beware of men. Jesus told him, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And now he defines who the wolves are. Be watchful, be innocent, but don't be naive. Don't be naive. Because the church have strayed from scriptures, what we see in churches a lot now is we have naive Christians. We have a bunch of naive Christians, and we don't recognize the wolves because we're not calling sin, sin. right? When we put a good face on evil, we try to put a good face on sin, we try to, when we condone it, okay, and even when we don't say anything against it, that's a form of self-deception. If you're truly living out your faith, Speaking the truth, it's going to offend some people. That's just the truth of the gospel. If You live it out and you speak it out, it's going to offend people. Not because you're abrasive or rude, but because the gospel is offensive to those who are perishing. It saves the lives of those who are open to it, but it's offensive to those who are perishing. And those people are going to react eventually one way or the other. And we should love our enemies, and we're not going to return evil for evil we're going to be innocent, but we don't deny that we are living in the midst of wolves. We're not to be naive. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had told them that those who are persecuted for his name will be blessed. And now here comes the promise that if we live that way, it's going to happen. Because up to this point, they hadn't seen much opposition, if any, at all. In fact, they don't really face any persecution until after Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit falls on the disciples and they start speaking out boldly about Jesus and they face persecution at that point because the religious leaders thought that they had done away with Jesus, that they had won. They had put away this Jesus problem. And then here come the disciples and they're speaking boldly in his name. And that's why I believe that as we get closer to his return, it's going to get very, very difficult for the church in America because they've driven Jesus out of the public square and they're trying to eliminate him from every area of the secular life. They think they're winning by driving him out. And the more vocal the church gets, there's going to be more backlash. Just wait and see. Now, it's interesting this week, you guys might've seen um, on Monday night, right? The Buffalo Bills player that collapsed on the field and they paused the game, right? Because this guy collapsed. And then they ended up, they're not going to actually finish the game. They just canceled it altogether. But there's been all this outpouring this week on this, on this player. And I don't know if you saw it. One of the most incredible things that I've seen on ESPN, right? Secular Sports Channel. They're sitting there talking, and one of the guys is sitting there at the table. He's with a, a guy and a lady. And he says, you know, they're talking about this, this man. And he said, you know, I see all of these tweets and all of these posts from organizations and all these people saying thoughts and prayers, and we believe in prayer. Um, even the organization, I think, had said that. And he said, I don't know if it's right or wrong, but I'm just going to pray for him right now on national television. He's like, I'm just going to bow my head, and I'm just going to pray because we believe in the power of prayer. And everybody says that, so I'm just going to do it right now. And I would have loved to have seen the faces of the people in the control room when he said he was going to bow his head and pray. It was awesome. And when he said that, he goes, I don't know if it's right or wrong. The guy sitting on the other side was like, it's right. So, I mean, he hit, he took that opportunity like a running back going right through the hole, man. He He took it. And so he bowed his head and he prayed. He must have prayed for like 30 seconds. It was cool. It took some guts to do that. I don't know if he's going to be invited back or what's going to happen to him, but he planted his flag right there in front of everybody. Now, I'll say this, and I'm not criticizing him at all, because what he did was amazing. And people, for the most part, are receptive to that. They're okay with it. But he didn't mention the name of Jesus, okay? And I'm not criticizing him, I'm not, because that's incredible what he did. And we all knew who he was praying to. But if he said the, the, the name Jesus, I just have to wonder what the secular world would have done with that. Because lots of people, they're okay, you want to pray to God, you know, okay, whatever. But if you mention the name Jesus, there is going to be backlash because he's exclusive, right? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, what he did was amazing, so I'm not criticizing him at all. I'm just saying, in the world's eyes, you mentioned the, word, the name Jesus, there is going to be opposition. And I'm not saying that to sound dramatic. Jesus wasn't trying to scare his disciples. He wasn't trying to make them suspicious of every person that they ran into, but he was preparing them for the truth that not everybody is going to accept the message or the messengers because the devil is recruiting as many people as possible to oppose the work of the kingdom. And Jesus is telling them, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Don't be naive. We shouldn't be surprised when we see all this opposition happening in our culture. And he gives them four areas where the church is going to experience persecution. Like I said, we're not going to get to all of them today, but we'll do the first two. First is religion. The Jewish courts, the synagogues, that was going to be the first place. The second was government, governors, and kings. Uh, The third one that we'll talk about next week was family right? Parents against their children, brother against brother. And the fourth is just society at large. All are going to hate you for my namesake, And all four of these areas are going to converge to attack and persecute the church. And as we get closer to the Lord's return, it's only going to get worse and worse, and it will find its peak in the tribulation. But we won't be here. Um, but all of those things will continue to persecute the church until They're all taken out. While it's tempting to put faces on all of these areas, right, we need to remember who our oppressor is, who's actually responsible for the persecution. Paul tells us exactly who it is in Ephesians 6. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There might be forces and leaders in this world, but they are subject to the leaders and the forces in the spiritual realm that are pulling the strings. Satan is, is inspiring them to do these things demonically. He uses the agents of men to persecute the church, but he's the one inspiring it. So the first area, Jesus says, is religious. Every city back then that had at least 10 Jewish men had a synagogue. If there were 10 men, you had a synagogue, and that was their place of worship. But it was also a place where they held trials, where they tried people, and where they convicted them, and they carried out punishments. And he says that you're going to be flogged in their courtrooms. When a man was flogged, he received 39 lashes. 39 lashes. 39 lashes. Um, this is different from the Roman scourging that took place. Um, the Romans used that scourge, that cat of nine that had, you know, the leather, the woven leather straps that had glass and metal, right, and bone woven into those straps that would just tear open the flesh, what they used on Jesus. This is different than that. The law allowed for 40 lashes, but they subtracted one just in case they miscounted. They didn't want to break the law, so they had 39 lashes. And this is the type of punishment that Paul was responsible for when he was tracking down Christians, hauling them back in change to the synagogues, to the courts, and the people were being flogged. Then, after his conversion, by the time he had written his second letter to the Corinthians, he said he had already been whipped five times. Five times he had received. He says 40 lashes minus one, that's what he says might sound strange to think that the church is going to be persecuted by religion, but this has always been the case. Okay, The Jewish relig- religious leaders were the ones that persecuted the early church until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Once the temple was destroyed by the Romans, once the priests were disbanded, once the sacrifices ceased, um, all persecution of the church from the Jewish leadership went away. But then Rome turned on them. And one of the reasons why Rome turned on them was because after their conversions, they stopped worshiping idols. They stopped making sacrifices. So they stopped purchasing these idols. They stopped purchasing the sacrifices. And this was impacting their economy, the revenue to the empire. Millions of Christians were killed by 10 Roman emperors. A lot of the things that we stand against as Christians Makes the world very rich. You know that? The world gets very, very rich off of things that we stand against. They don't want Christian morals. They don't want Christian values placed on them because if we do, it takes money out of their pockets. You know, we used to try to curb things that we did, did deemed um, harmful to society by taxing them at a higher rate, right? You remember what those were called? Syntax. That's interesting. What's called a syntax because they were things that were bad, right? We don't call them that anymore. We just tax it more for revenue. But uh, they don't want Christian morals or values placed on them because it takes money out of their pockets. Christians still face the worst persecution at the hands of other religions in the world. Um, Muslims, Hindus, you name it. These demonically inspired religions will be the the force that persecutes the church the most until Jesus returns. During the tribulation, there will be a one-world religion. One world religion in the end times, and that will be what persecutes the church. And Jesus says that if the time wasn't cut short, there wouldn't be any that survive it. The tribulation converts, if they don't bend the knee to the religion of the day, they will be killed. They will be martyred. So religion and then also persecuted by governments. Um, This one's intriguing because Jesus said that we'll be dragged before governors and kings for the sake of him to bear witness before them. Jesus says there'll be oppression, but it's actually going to be an opportunity. It's going to be an opportunity to bear witness about him before these leaders. Uh, Paul appeared before numerous kings and leaders. He appeared before um, King Agrippa, and King Agrippa actually knew something about the Jewish faith um, and what was going on with what they called the way. And so uh, Paul had been arrested, and he's talking in front of King Agrippa, and he's just going for it. And King Agrippa like, listen, Paul, wait a minute. Do you think you can convert me in such a short time? Because Paul's just laying it all out there all at once. And then another instance where a Jewish mob was about to tear him limb from limb, some Roman soldiers pulled him into the barracks. He got sent in front of a governor named Festus, and he preached to Festus. And Festus was about to hand him over to the Jewish authorities. When he claimed his right as a a Roman citizen, he appealed to Caesar. He said, "I've, I've talked to kings, I've talked to governors. Just take it all the way to the top. Uh, Because as a Roman citizen, you could plead your case to Caesar. Now, he was born in Israel. He was born in a place called Tarsus. He was born out in the empire, so he actually was a Roman citizen. So he availed himself of that right to take the gospel to Rome. And he got an all-expense-paid trip to Rome. Now, he was a prisoner, but he got an all-expense-paid trip to Rome to spread the gospel message. It was an opportunity for him. Jesus appeared before Herod, He appeared before Pilate, and as you know, um, the Bible says that after Herod had tried him and talked to him, after Pilate had tried him and questioned him, that Herod and Pilate became buddies after that. They were enemies before, but after they persecuted Jesus... They became friends. They came together to persecute Jesus. And in the end times, the countries of the world will come together to persecute the church and try to wipe out Christians. We're already seeing it today. You can see it happening in Canada. You can see it happening here in our country. You can see it in Asia. Christians are being killed every single day in Africa. It's happening right now. And in the end, the countries of the world will come together to persecute Christians. And they hate Christians because they hate Christ. Don't forget that the more that we become like Christ, the more that they are going to oppose us. 1 Peter 4:14 4, says if you are reviled for the name of Christ you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's the spirit of glory and of God that the world can't stand. And when the people of God turn from his standards, from his holiness, even in free countries. Eventually, the government is going to take steps to try to inhibit the free expression of worship and faith in God and in the Bible. Religion will persecute the church. Governments will persecute the church. In the end times, they will be one and the same. One world government, one world religion. Until then, we're called to endure. The ones who are faithful to the end, who endure, will be saved Okay, you guys can come back up. Um, I was telling this uh, to them before because I found this earlier week, and I get all excited, um, and I tell people, and they kind of literally are like, well, and I'm super excited about it. I don't know if you guys, so we, we had the Olympics, right? Um, one of the, it seems kind of like a boring tradition in the Olympics where they take the flame, right, the torch, and they run it, from one city, from the city that just hosted it to the next host city, which I think the next one's going to be France. Is that right? Um, and it seems kind of like a silly thing because somebody will run like three miles and they'll hand it off to somebody else until it all it gets all the way there. I didn't know this, but that actually was a race in ancient times in Greece. And the race was a relay race. And the winning team, it wasn't the fastest team. It was the team that finished with their torch still lit still lit. Isn't that amazing? And they got to light the Olympic flame, which back then was a sacrifice. But that's where that comes from. It was a very significant thing. It was a huge honor if you won this race. And Paul encourages us. He says, run the race before you with endurance. Finish the race. Run the race well. But I don't just want to finish the race. I want to finish the race with my torch blazing. Okay, that should be the desire of every Christian, not just to cross the finish line, but to cross the finish line with our fire still burning bright. We live in a world full of wolves. And Jesus sends us out to be his witnesses in this world because that's where the spiritually sick are. Even if it's dangerous. We have to uh, present the message of the gospel truthfully and honestly, That you have to count the cost of being a disciple for Jesus? It's not going to be easy because God's kingdom is directly opposed to the world's kingdom. They are completely at odds, which means it's going to be difficult. We have to count the cost. And we need to use wisdom in how we share the gospel message. And we need to do it innocently. And we need to do it in love. So don't be surprised. Don't be naive when you see persecution. Whether it's from other religious people whether it's from our government, Jesus warned about it. Warned us about it ahead of time. You know, when this all happened with COVID, people got really freaked out about the government's interaction and things like that. Um, we shouldn't be surprised, right? He told us this would happen. People act very shocked sometimes. Like, okay, read your Bibles. That's what Jesus says. He warned us, don't be naive. We follow the shepherd wherever he goes, and we keep our torches burning bright to be fruitful vines not spiritually mediocre but those who are living for you Alicia said this earlier she said you know what there's no such thing as radical Christianity there isn't there's just Christianity it's supposed to be radical because it goes against the ways of the world right I'm going to come up and preach it (laughs) one day I'm going to let her come up here and you guys are in for it man because she can preach she can out preach me it'll be good (laughs) All right. Next week, we will fit. This is a heavy topic, persecution. Um, we don't like to think about persecution. We live in a free country. It's not something that we have to face very often. Um, we have very fairly thin skin um, as Americans um, and as Christians. And it's my job as the shepherd to warn the sheep, right? Because if you just, all you do is feed the sheep, right, and you don't warn the sheep, then all you're doing is just fattening them up for slaughter. Okay, so feed the sheep, but I also warn the sheep. Okay, we're vulnerable, but we follow the shepherd. We follow him wherever he goes, and we trust him because it's for his glory and for our good. Amen.